this is a message that uh, God led me to put together based on what's in the textbooks today. I actually call it 50 Facts versus Darwinism in the Textbooks. That's the full title, but um, it's actually caused one college to launch an accredited course attacking me. Uh, I spoke at this college one night, and um, this was several years ago, about six years ago. Well, three years later, I was doing one of our Grand Canyon tours, and we do a three-mile hike right along the rim, and a young woman came up to me, and she said, Hey, Russ, I'm going to tell you something. This is going to shock you, but I was at the college the last time you spoke, and I got to tell you I was a major in biology, the most steeped in Darwinian teaching. It was two weeks before I graduated, and I had been raised in a Christian home, hadn't been to church since I left home at age 18 because the first week of college, the professors are going, look, this refutes the Bible. Look, this refutes the Bible. Any Christians in here, look, this over here proves the Bible's not true. And she hadn't been to church since she left home at age 18. Today, 20, no, excuse me, 85 to 90% of Christian children are leaving the church by the age of 20. Anyway, she was just one of the millions, and she said, I've got to tell you, what you showed me that night made me so mad at you, I hated your stinking guts. She said, I was livid that you'd have the audacity to come on our college campus and challenge what we've been taught. Well, two weeks later, she graduated in biology and became a high school biology teacher, and she said, for two years, I taught 60 children, they evolved without God. And then my parents' church had you come and speak at church on a Sunday morning in our hometown. When I heard about that, I wanted to throw up. I couldn't believe they've had an idiot like you come and speak. And I went for, to church for the first time in seven years just to hear what kind of nonsense you were going to spew out of your stupid mouth. And I said, well, hey, I appreciate learning that. that and she said, and about halfway through that sermon that Sunday morning, I realized this guy is just telling the truth. And she gave her life back to Jesus that Sunday. The next day, she went into the public school and said, I will never again teach the fairy tale of Darwinian evolution. And they said, then you have to resign your job. She quit her job. Ever since, she's taught science in the Christian school in Sholo, Arizona. I gave this in Grand Rapids, Michigan about a year ago. Calvin College, which is a Christian college, they teach theistic evolution to their students there. They, they teach about how Jesus used millions of years of death and suffering and evolution, how evolution's true, and how biblical creation is just a myth and a fairy tale, and there never was a global flood. It's a, it's a Christian school, by the way. And <clears throat> anyways, they sent their 50 honor students to, to harass me, and I gave this message. I walked off the stage, just got, there were curtains on the edge of the stage. I barely got behind the curtains, and five of their students came running up the steps right in my face. This one young woman just yelling at me, I have an advanced degree in biology, and I came here to debate you about Darwinism, and you just showed me everything I've been taught based on a lie. And I said, well, praise God. Now you can start telling people the truth. Calvin College professors came out last year and said, publicly, there was never an Adam and Eve. This, this is a growing trend in Christian circles today. There's never an Adam and Eve. Why would you deny Adam and Eve? Well, here, I'm going to show you here in just a second here. Guess I need to turn that on. 
Jesus said that Moses wrote of me. And Moses, we're going to cover these foundations one more time, but I'll do it quickly. But if we don't understand this, and this has been lost in much of the Christian church today, then we don't see what it matters. God created a perfect universe with no death, evil, or suffering, but Adam's original sin corrupted the creation, allowing death, evil, and suffering to enter, bringing on the curse, separating us from God, requiring Jesus' death on the cross as our redeeming Savior to redeem us with God. So there's the biblical foundation. Death before Adam undermines all of that. It's what old earth beliefs were designed to do 200 years ago. They're only not even very old. Millions of years of beliefs aren't even thousands of years old. They're not even hundreds of years old. Now, we talked about the age of the earth last night, and I showed you, if you were here, how a global flood wipes out every old earth belief. So Moses also told us that God judged man's sin once already with a flood that covered all the high hills under the whole heaven. And what we find today is the outer crust of the earth averages a mile deep of sedimentary layers of rock laid down by water, full of billions of dead things that were drowned and buried before they could rot away or get eaten by scavengers, exactly what would be there had there been a global flood. And I showed you last night that the old earth beliefs are based on the exact same sedimentary layers of rock. They just reinterpret it through their belief that, hey, hey, wait a minute, there was never a global flood. No, no, those layers of rock laid down by water, they formed slowly over millions and billions of years of time. Well, we debunked this last night, but this puts death before Adam. This means millions of years of death brought you into the world, not a loving creator creating you and your death bringing, or your, your sin bringing death into the world. So they're polar opposites, and this is what's been taught as if it were science now for 50 years. You know, sometimes I speak in colleges, and I even speak in some churches where most of the people don't believe in creation. And I mean, people get mad, and they're, and they're just glaring at me like this to start. And God showed me how to take the wind right out of their sails. I usually start out by saying, hey, how many of you have been taught that creation is a religious belief? Oh, man, they raise their hands. We've got this guy now. I said, well, how many of you have been taught that, that evolution is science? Oh, man, they raise their hands, because that's what is taught today and for 50 years now. And then I just ask a simple question. Well, wait a minute. Aren't, aren't creation and evolution exactly the same thing? Aren't they both beliefs? on how we came about? Oh yeah, they're both beliefs on how we came about. Neither one is science. Science is knowledge derived from the study of evidence. Creation and evolution are both beliefs on how we came about. But by teaching death existed before man, they're teaching, hey, there was never any perfect creation corrupted by some original sin that brought death into the world. No, no, it was billions of years of death that brought you into the world. Old earth beliefs put death before Adam. That's what they were designed to do. I used to be a theistic evolutionist. I'm not attacking anyone that's been fooled into believing in one of those non-biblical beliefs. Now listen, did I just say they're non-biblical? I did. I'm not saying that to hurt anyone's feelings or make anyone mad. I'm, I'm saying that because I care about you. Look in the Bible and see if you find them. And that doesn't count re rewriting what God said. No, read God's word and see if you can find them. You won't. And when you can't find them, you'll realize, wow, they're non-biblical. Then say, praise God, I notice that, and humble yourself to God's word. Because these things destroy the gospel message. In fact, to American atheists, here's what he says. 
destroy original sin by putting death before Adam, and in the rubble you'll find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means by putting death before Adam, Christianity is nothing. And I agree with that statement 100%. And so do 85 to 90% of your children and grandchildren. Now, Jesus said you tell good from bad by the fruit. Losing 90% of our kids, is that good fruit or bad fruit? So it's time to stop the compromise, isn't it? I think so. You know, we're told, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. So we need to beware of man's philosophies. And there really are only two viable philosophies out there today. Either God created the world just like he says he did, or the world evolved all on its own through millions of years of death and suffering. Those are the two only viable choices out there. Well, now I live in Flagstaff. It's a college town, and we do have that group that thinks, well, maybe we're not here at all. Maybe we just think we're here. <laughs> but as a general rule, I don't worry about this group a whole lot because we really are here. Now, if you're a, a, a young kid, and let's say you're seven years old and you love science. Well, guess what? You're going to be taught your entire life. This is what's been taught for 50 years. Any scientist under the age of 75, this is what they've been taught since they were little kids. Earth has changed much since it formed four and a half billion years ago. It started out as a hot ball of rock. And oceans formed as it rained on the rock for millions of years of time. This is what you're going to be taught. All the way to the Ph.D. level of science, this is what is hammered into your head and hammered into your head, and it's going to be very difficult to see the world through any other lens. Now, I'm going to show you a visual here, and I, I want you guys to participate. You're only, you're only going to be talking to yourselves. But look at this visual, and out loud to yourself, say the color, not the word. Because you, you've, been, you've been taught to read the word, not say the color. You have to do it out loud. Go ahead. Yellow, blue, black. Come on, say it out loud. Just say it to yourself. Yellow, red, blue. But say the color, not the word. Say the color, not the word. So think about it. What's my point here? My point is you've been taught to read the word, not say the color. And even when the evidence is right in front of you and you're even told what to do, it's very, very hard to do it because you've been indoctrinated. You've been taught to read the word and not say the color. So if you've come up through 20 years of schooling teaching you you evolved over millions of years of death and suffering, guess how you're going to interpret all the evidence that's given to you through that worldview. In fact, one of the questions I was given a couple, I'll address both of them here, but uh, one of them was, how has the secular world been able to deceive the scientific community? By saying the color, not the word. The Bible says, prove all things and hold fast that which is good. See, the Bible wants us proving things. Some people say, well, you're not supposed to prove the Bible. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You see, God wants you to prove things if you need some help because real science is our best friend. 
Now, let me point something out. One of the many lies out there by secularists is if you don't believe in evolution, you're anti-science. I'm about to show you which is anti-science. A real Christian, a believer, is, is, is absolutely pro-real science, things you can test, study, and observe. False science is another issue, though, and we must stand up against false science. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. You see, real science, operational science, has led to many great improvements in our world is knowledge derived from the testing of observable evidence. It has to be testable, studyable, observable, repeatable for the findings to be scientific in nature. For instance, let's talk about some real science here. What about the law of biogenesis, a principle of real biology? The law of biogenesis holds that life only comes from life. In other words, non-living matter cannot produce life. This is such a big problem for Darwinism, they have no way to get over the scientific law of biogenesis and get life started. So what they claim, and I want to be just fair with you and to them, is that evolution has nothing to do with the start of life. So that's, what, that's how they try to get around the fact they can't get life started without God. They think a big bang, nothing blew up, a big rock formed, it rained on the rock, and you're sitting there with this wet, sterile rock, no life whatsoever, how did life start? Okay, they've got a problem. So to get around the law of biogenesis, you know, real science, a Christian's best friend, here's what they teach right out of the textbook. All the many forms of life on earth today are descended, stated as a fact, from a common ancestor. This is stated as a fact, found in a population of primitive unicellular organisms. How's a kid supposed to argue with that? They've just been taught as a scientific fact that all things came from a single-cell creature that overcame the law of biogenesis, right? Well, since science is knowledge derived from the study of the evidence, what evidence do they have of this? Oh, it says right here. No traces of those events remain. There is not a shred of evidence from the Big Bang to the Big Rock to the rain on the rock to the Big Poof when life starts on its own to, to, to evolution from some single-cell creature. There is zero evidence. It's a complete fairy tale. Let's continue. Since they say we start out as a single-cell creature like a bacteria, let's, just, let's take just a quick look at a bacteria cell. They're run by tiny molecular motors called bacterial flagellum. Now, these molecular motors allow the cell to swim around and perform its various functions. It can even change gears, depending on how much weight it's towing or pushing. Now, they're made up of about 40 different, very complex and specific proteins that must be whole and complete and in the exact order to form the molecular motor at the exact moment life starts or life couldn't start on its own. Oh, and it gets worse for Darwinists. You see, the, to put the flagellum in order requires other molecular motors that are also must be whole and in the exact order at the exact moment for life to start. In fact, real science, a Christian's best friend, as they get into the cell, they're now finding there are thousands of molecular motors in every cell. And they all had to be there at the exact moment for life to start. In other words, there is no way life could have started on its own. And that's why the law of biogenesis exists. Now, 
they are going to try to teach in the textbooks, they're going to try to fool kids into believing that scientists in labs have been able to get non-living matter to produce life. However, if you look closely at their experiments, you're going to find that they have never come anywhere near creating life, even in a laboratory from non-life. They have been able to come up with some non-living chemical compounds that are found in living matter. That would be like you and I creating calcium. And since calcium is found in humans, say, we've created a human being. They've come nowhere near creating life in the lab. The law of biogenesis has never been known to have been overcome. That's the reason it's a scientific law, real science, a believer's best friend. So at the class that they have attacking me, they use the, uh, the book that's written by Eugenie Scott, one of the world's most outspoken atheists, no bias there, and she's the president of the National Center of Science Education. So I went to their book that she wrote in the class attacking me and creation to see, well, how do they explain life starting without God? And on page 26 it says, the origin of life was not a sudden event, but a continuum of events with, uh, well, uh, <coughs> a lot of iffy stuff in the middle. That's the modern college textbooks, my friends. Bill Gates said DNA is like a computer program, but far more advanced than any software ever created. It's estimated if you put all the software programs in the world together, they wouldn't equal the complexity of the DNA. To think this came about poof on its own is absolutely mind-boggling beyond comprehension. One mathematician and molecular biologist calculated the odds of just one DNA arranging itself on its own in nature to be one in 10 to the 100 billionth power. What kind of a number is that? Well, one in 10 to the 50th power is considered absolute zero. One in 10 to the 100 billionth. In Arizona, we have a weekly lottery, and I'm not saying you should play it, but if you did play it, your odds of winning the weekly lottery every week 52 weeks a year for 27,000 years in a row would be mathematically better than one DNA arranging itself on its own. Oh, and Darwinists don't need one DNA. They need billions of DNA. Starting to see why the law of biogenesis exists? So think about it logically. The world's brightest scientific minds building on years and years of millions of other scientists' research and observations with billions of dollars of lab equipment and salaries and computers thrown in cannot make non-living matter produce living matter. Yet our kids are taught rocks and seawater did it on their own. Oh, but wait a minute, not today when you could show it happening or test, study, and observe it. Oh, no, long ago and far away, I guess maybe in the land of Oz. But my friends, that's a fairy tale, and it's undermined the faith of billions of people. This former Harvard professor and Nobel Prize winner stated, modern biologists having reviewed the downfall of spontaneous generation, that's poof, life starting on its own, yet unwilling to accept creation, are left with nothing. Well, they still have that iffy stuff. Okay, so they've got no way to get life started. Let, let's move on from here then. Nature Magazine, the most prestigious of scientific journals, stated 
The origin of animals is almost as much a mystery as the origin of life. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We've just shown they've got no clue how life could start on its own. What does this say about the evolution of animals? Yeah, exactly. Now, if you understand the difference between micro and macro evolution, you, will, you would be able to win any debate anywhere with a Darwinist, which, by the way, is why they will not debate anymore. They used to debate back in the 80s and early 90s, and they started figuring out, hey, we're losing all the debates. But we own the schools and the textbooks. We can just close the door and teach what we, what we want, and that's what they have done. But if you understand the difference between micro and macro, you'll never be fooled by them again. You see, the word evolution has many meanings, and there is one meaning that is scientific and biblical, and that's microevolution. It's better to get the word evolution out of there. Darwinists love that word because they can go from one definition to another and fool people into thinking there's proof of Darwinian or macroevolution. Macro, Darwinian evolution, would be one kind changing into a different kind like a bird changing or a dinosaur changing into a bird, which is what they've been teaching the last couple of years. Anyways, that would be a macro change. Micro adaptations are just changes within the same kind. Dogs producing dogs with variations in the dog. You can breed roses, get red, yellow, pink roses. Some do better in cold climates, some do better in warm climates. But roses will only bring forth roses. Dogs will only bring forth dogs. Humans will only bring forth humans. In other words, kinds only bring forth after their kind. That is a scientific fact. I could show you millions of examples of kinds bringing forth after their kind. There's about 14 or so right there. How many examples of Darwinian evolution can be shown that will hold up to scrutiny? Zero. Zero. Oh, now, there's a lot of frauds in the textbooks. I'm going to get into a few here in just a few minutes. But it's important to understand, first of all, that millions of examples of microadaptations can be shown. Why is that important for you to understand this, and especially kids in school today? Because ten times in the book of Genesis, we're told that plants and our animals will bring forth after their kind. And after not hundreds, not thousands, but after millions of scientific observations, Guess what's found to take place every single time? Kinds only bring forth after their own kind. Just like we're told ten times in the book of Genesis. Here's a fact to, to know and to remember about these micro changes, these biblically correct kinds bringing forth after their kind. Think about this. They're, they are caused by the sorting or loss of the parent's genetic information. So the, the adapted offspring are losing genetic information. It's called gene depletion. It's a scientific fact. So kids are given lots of examples of biblically correct micro-adaptations, but then they switch the discussion to Darwinian macroevolution, and the kids think that they've been shown proof of Darwinism when there isn't a shred of evidence that Darwinism ever happened. It's scientifically impossible. Darwinists focus the discussion on biblically correct micro change because there's no evidence of Darwinism to show anybody. I mean, when Darwin went to the Galapagos, he, he noticed there were different finches. Thick bill finches, thin bill finches, yellow finches, black finches. 
Great observation of micro changes, kinds bringing forth after their kind due to the sorting or loss of the parent's gene pool. Of course, we didn't know anything about genetics then, and he jumped to the miraculously erroneous conclusion that somehow, given enough time, the magic ingredient, finches would become non-finches, leading to Darwinian change. Darwin saw what? He saw that the Bible was true. He just made a mistake in his interpretation. You know, they don't actually teach Darwinism in schools anymore, haven't for a long time now. They now actually teach what's called neo-Darwinism. You see, Darwinism had no mechanism to add the new and beneficial genetic information that would be required to change one kind into a different kind. So to get over that hurdle, they came up with neo-Darwinism. It's based on three erroneous conclusions. That one, hey, mutations create new and beneficial genetic information. That's where the new information comes from. Hey, has anyone, any, any fathers or grandfathers in here that have ever sat in a delivery room hoping that your child or grandchild would be born with mutations so they'd be better? <laughs> exactly. Enough said about mutations adding the new and beneficial information. And then they believe since the mutant is better, natural selection will cause it to take over the gene pool given the magic ingredient millions and billions of years of time. They think given enough time, a bacteria cell somehow overcame the law of biogenesis and all mathematical possibility and mutated its way to everything on Earth, including you and I, which they consider to be the ultimate mutation. Now, if you want to believe you're the ultimate mutation, that's your choice. I say you were made in the image of God, just like the Word of God tells us. Here's a problem for neo-Darwinism. After millions of scientific observations, real science, a Christian's best friend, it's found that mutations, just like adaptations, are caused by the sorting or the loss of the parent's gene pool, not by the gain of new and beneficial genetic information. Gene depletion applies to mutations just as it does adaptations. Now, natural selection is a scientific fact. I could show you a million examples of natural selection. You know, there really is no selector. God created his types with a certain amount of genetic information. And if one kind gets into an environment, it doesn't have the genetic information to survive in, it just dies off. Now that's what we named natural selection, but there is no selector picking them out. But you could show millions of examples of natural selection taking place. I call it God's quality assurance program. I mean, think about this. Things are losing genetic information through gene depletion. If they went unchecked, everything would go extinct in about a thousand years. Well, what keeps the mutations from causing everything to go extinct? They lose too much information. They get removed from the gene pool by natural selection. God's quality assurance program. Yet here's a textbook telling kids how natural selection causes Darwinian evolutionism. Well, natural selection doesn't have anything to do with Darwinism. If anything, it would prevent it. So kids up to the Ph.D. level of science are taught that mutations plus natural selection lead to Darwinian change. Here's how you scientifically destroy Darwinism in four seconds flat. Start your watch. Gene depletion plus natural selection makes Darwinism a scientific impossibility. Stop your watch. This is why they've got no evidence. It's a scientific impossibility. It never 
happen. And we've got places like Calvin College teaching their future pastors and worship directors and church leaders that God used evolution. Darwinian-style evolution never happened. We need to stop compromising God and his word with beliefs that put death before Adam. Anyone with me on that? Absolutely. Yet this scientist and former Nobel Prize winner said, anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done. And that includes lying, cheating, stealing, and filling textbooks full of frauds. Oh, and in case you think this guy is brilliant, let me just point something out. He's a person like all the rest of us. He doesn't even realize he's pushing his religious belief. You see, everybody has a religious belief. Everybody. If you're an atheist, that's your religious belief. Every human being holds to a religious belief. So let's look at some of the frauds in the textbooks. Now, this is Ernst Haeckel. He read Darwin's book 10 years after it was published. He read it in 1869, and he loved it. But he, he had a problem, same problem evolutionists have today. He couldn't find any evidence that Darwinian change ever happened. So he did what Darwinists have become famous for. He invented some evidence. He came up with the biogenetic law. That sounds pretty impressive. Or the theory of recapitulation. That's what it's known as mostly today. Kids, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Anyone want to argue with that? Exactly. How's a kid supposed to argue with that? What that basically means is you go through your, your uh, evolutionary stages while you're in your mother's womb. And he came up with some drawings. I'm going to show you his drawings of a human in the embryonic stage and some other creatures. And this is what his theory of recapitulation is based on. Left to right across the top are his drawings. Right below are the photos. Uh, what was proven in the 1870s Haeckel had done was he took a human that was in the embryonic stage, drew copies of the human, and labeled them fish, salamanders, chickens, etc., and came up with the theory of recapitulation that they're going through their evolutionary stages while you're in your mother's womb. Proven fraud in the 1870s and still taught in college today. Since NAU, Northern Arizona, attacks me, I figured I'd use their textbooks as examples. But this is typical of all schools. And they teach in their biology classes using Haeckel's original drawings, proven fraud in the 1870s. And it says, kids, whether they develop into fish, amphibians, or humans, all invertebrate embryos start out very similar with gill slits and a long tail. Your kids are being taught they start out with gill slits and a long tail while they're in their mother's womb. My friends, you never had a long tail. One of the first things that, that starts to develop in a human embryo is the backbone. Now, granted, we named the end of the backbone the tailbone. It has nothing to do with you ever having a tail. It's just what we unfortunately called it. And then this textbook goes on. And ask this rhetorical question of a student. Why would humans, think about it, why would humans have embryos with gill slits and a long tail unless their ancestors had them? And what's a kid going to say? This, they've just been supposedly proven they evolved on their own without God, right? 
a 100% lie right here in the textbook. I'll challenge any Darwinist anywhere on it. You never had a long tail. You never had gill slits. You never had slits where the gills used to go. These are folds in the skin, not gill slits, and they later develop into the organs in your throat and neck area. Pure fraud, pure propaganda. Proven fraud in the 1870s. And fraud in the 19th century is still fraud in the 21st century. And let me ask you a question. Why don't they just get the frauds out of the textbooks and fill it up with all the real evidence of Darwinian evolution? Because there is none. Gene depletion plus natural selection makes this a scientific impossibility. Have you ever heard you're 98% the same in your biochemistry as a chimpanzee? Proving we're cl close relatives with chimps. Actually, real science, a believer's best friend, as they get into the genome, now have this down below 90%. This from uh, Back to Nature magazine. Chimp and human Y chromosomes have a 30% difference. That's a 70% similarity, not 98% similarity. If genetic similarity proves our evolutionary past, they should teach we evolved from worms because your biochemistry is 75% the same as that from some worms. Yeah, your biochemistry is 50% the same as that from a banana. Anyone evolved from a banana? Wow, not even one? Okay. Last time I was at uh, Northern Arizona University, 500 students raised their hand. And they were serious because they have been taught we all evolved from a common ancestor. That would mean you evolved from a banana. So I went home and checked my family tree. There wasn't a banana in the whole bunch. <laughs> I didn't even find that very appealing, to tell you the truth. <laughs> oh, I see. I see how it goes around here. Okay. That was my wife back there going, oh. So, you know, I, I actually hate to say this, but I'm actually the first and only person that has proof of Darwinian change having taken place. So I'm going to show it to you guys. I'm going to announce it to the media tomorrow, and I'll be a world-renowned evolutionist getting, oh, at least a million dollars a night anywhere I want to speak at any college campus around the world. Um, but I, I noticed through research that, that some people had discovered clouds are 100% water, and watermelons were 97% water. And I started looking at it and thinking, wow, that's a pretty close, you know, biochemical similarity. But there had to be some missing links in that 3% difference. Through some research, I found that jellyfish are 98% water and snow cones are 98% water. And I thought, hey, we have an evolutionary tree of life. I think the lowly watermelon branched off to jellyfish and snow cones. But somehow a snow cone was dropped on the sidewalk, melted and evaporated into a cloud. And I think I have an evolutionary tree of life here. What do you think? Okay, so you might be thinking, hey, Russ, that was really stupid. And that's my point. You see, putting things in textbooks and drawing nice, colorful lines connecting them, that doesn't prove anything, does it? Absolutely not. So I guess I'm not going to be a world-famous evolutionist, am I? Have you ever heard that bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics or insects becoming resistant to insecticides is proof they're evolving bigger and better? Well, actually, this has absolutely nothing to do with the evolution of new kinds with new and beneficial genetic information. Hey, let's say I had a thousand cockroaches right here on the floor, a thousand, and they were running right to you two guys. <laughs> but 
fortunately for you, I spray them with an insecticide, and it kills 998. But two survived. Did those two instantaneously evolve an immune system? Of course not. They, they already had a gene in their DNA that was switched on and allowed them to survive that particular poison. The other 998 didn't have that gene or it was not switched on. Now, when these two have offspring, they'll inherit the immune gene. They evolved nothing. So why do Darwinists use this as one of their biggest proofs today? Because they've got nothing. Gene depletion plus natural selection makes Darwinism a scientific impossibility. It never happened. Yet this textbook says, well, we have evidence of evolution. They're talking about Darwinism. From the fossil record, well, if it happened, they certainly should. Here's an evolutionary tree of life that adorns textbooks. It's nice and colorful. At the base, someone types in the word invertebrate ancestor. And then somebody takes a box of crayons and draws nice colorful lines from the word invertebrate ancestor to everything on Earth. Hey, let me ask you something. Do you see any evidence here? Is that how you prove Darwinism? You take a box of crayons and draw colorful lines connecting things? So if I drew an orange line from the piano to these first two guys in the first row, and one is wearing an orange shirt, that could be a close similarity there, would that prove they evolved from the piano? Of course not. You know, for this to be scientific, each one of these colorful lines would need to be made up of millions of transitional fossils as one kind slowly evolved into the next. For 150 years after Darwin's book came out, there are no transitional fossils that have been found that'll stand up to scientific scrutiny. They only have a handful they even try to run out there. In fact, amber, we find amber that's 150 to 250 million supposed years old based on the, the secular belief of strata forming slowly. But think about this. They find creatures, well, little plants and animals trapped in the amber and they look just like the living ones today. Well, I thought things evolved over millions of years of time. There's no evolution found in the fossil record. This book says Archaeopteryx is the missing link between reptiles and birds. Well, this was actually, Archaeopteryx was found two years after Darwin's book came out in 1861. They said, well, Archaeopteryx is about the size of a pigeon and had claws on its wing, proving it's a reptile evolving into a bird. Well, the Hoytzin in the lower right corner, he's found in South America alive today. He's about the size of a pigeon, has claws on his wings. No one's claiming he's a missing link of any sort. This is the whale evolution series. You know, they have the whale evolution series, the camel evolution series, horse evolution series. They're all the same basic fraud. So, and they say, well, this first guy is an extinct land creature, but Ambulocetus is the work of uh, Darwinian art here. These are the bones found uh, of Ambulocetus. That's supposedly the missing link between the land dweller and the whale. The white bones were found in a different location and in a different strata layer. They don't even come from the same creature who lived at the same time according to their belief system, but that's the missing link. There's no pelvic girdle. They don't know if he ran, swam, flew, or what. And Ambulocetus is actually 10 times that big. But if they drew him to scale, he would mess up the propaganda, wouldn't he? Hmm. They say the low fin fish was the missing link between 
the fish and the amphibian. And the story goes, the lobe fin went extinct 325 million years ago, and he didn't swim. He walked around the ocean on the bottom of his lobe fins, and one day he got bored, so he walked out on land and became an amphibian. I mean, what more could you want for proof than that, right? Well, first of all, the amphibian has feet, shoulders, elbows, claws, a central nervous system, a skeletal system, and a muscular system that the fish does not have, and real science knows of no way to, to, to add that type of information to an existing gene pool. You'll notice this also, that um, the Darwinian proofs are almost always drawings. Don't they have cameras? There's an old saying that goes like this, Darwinists are experts at drawing things that never existed to support their theory that never took place. But see, I can make this, I can show how silly this is, but you've got to realize these things are being presented to millions of children all around the United States and all around the globe every day. And they don't have anyone like me to stand there and show them they're being lied to. And by the way, the lobefin fish has been found alive today, not extinct 325 million years, and he doesn't walk around on the bottom of the ocean. He's an excellent swimmer, and the fossilized version that they believe is 300 plus million years old looks just like the living lobefin fish. I thought things evolved over time. So keep this in mind, the lobefin fish has not changed at all throughout the fossil record. Because on April Fool's Day, appropriately, in 2006, they announced Tetalic Rosea, which is now one of the messiahs for Darwinian evolution. Yet when they announced it as the big missing link, think about what, it, what we're told in the New York Times. It's a fish exhibiting changes that anticipate the beginnings. Wait a minute. It's not exhibiting changes or the beginnings of digits, wrists, elbows, it's exhibiting changes that just anticipate the random chance mutations that lead to wrists, elbows. How in the world do you do that? You want to explain that one to me? In other words, it's a fish, period. The fact is, Tetalic and the fossilized lobefin fish that we're told is 300 million years old, think about this, have bones that are exactly like the living lobefin fish with no evolutionary change between the fossilized version and the living one. And Tetalic has the same bones that never changed at all in the lobefin fish. Back to the NAU book, you'll like this. Keep that last piece in mind. So they show kids the drawings of the, the forearm of a human or the foreleg of a lizard or a cow or a cat or the four. Uh, or the flipper of a whale, and they all have two bones in them. And so they teach this is because they've derived from a common ancestor. Now, this is the best proof of Darwinism there is. It's the only thing that's even semi-interesting, is that we have somewhat similar bone structure. Now, who do they claim is the missing link between everything in the, in the brand new college textbook? The lobe-finned fish which shows zero change throughout the fossil record from millions of supposed years ago, and it's found living today with no change, and they're teaching that's the common ancestor that you evolved from. I say they have similar bone structure because they have a similar designer. Any argument of similarity, bone structure, biochemistry, anything, is a better argument. You have the same designer. 
Not that you evolved from a wet rock, overcoming the law of biogenesis, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, all mathematical possibilities, and on and on we can go. No, you have the same designer. I drive a Ford pickup truck. My next door neighbor drives a Ford van, and their dashboards are identical. Yeah. It's not because they evolved from a moped. It's because they had the same designer, right? Similarities are proof of a, the same designer. And that's the best evidence Darwinists have. Why don't they teach kids both sides and let the kids decide? Because if they taught both sides, nobody would believe in the fairy tale of Darwinian evolutionism. In fact, in case you think it's just me, a Bible-believing Christian, saying they've got no evidence, back in 1930, Richard Goldschmidt came up with a theory to explain why they have no evidence. He came up with what was called the hopeful monster theory, and he said, well, there's no evidence because, well, maybe reptiles laid eggs and birds popped out, leaving no evidence behind. Well, everyone was laughing at the hopeful monster theory, so 50 years later, around 1980, world-famous evolutionists Niles Eldridge and Stephen Gould of Harvard changed hopeful monster just slightly, but they gave it a much better-sounding scientific name. It's now called punctuated equilibrium. And if a kid asks a professor, professor, how come there's no evidence of Darwinism in the fossil record? They'll say, punctuated equilibrium, don't you know anything? And basically what this says is, you see, evolution didn't just poof happen overnight, but there was a spurt of evolution and a long period with no change. They call it stasis. And then a spurt of evolution and a long period with no change, punctuated equilibrium. And because of this, no evidence was captured in the fossil record. That's why there's no evidence. But I thought science was knowledge derived from the study of the evidence. Darwinism isn't science. It's a religious belief on how you came about without God. And let's not mix it into God's word. It's not how God got you here. If he did, he left zero evidence of how he did it. No, he created you just like he says he did. So you might be thinking, oh, come on, Russ, what about the ape men? I mean, we've all been shown the ape men, right? Like the hominids, the supposed closest link between ape and man. And here's a brand new textbook showing humans connected to all sorts of things like jellyfish and worms with a nice red line. And what more for proof could you want than a nice red line, right? How about some fossil evidence? So let's take a look at some of the most famous hominids, the closest link between ape and man. The Piltdown Man was the messiah for evolution from about 1910 till the mid-1950s. It fooled, not millions, billions of people into rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It fooled so many people that finally in 1963, we kicked creation and prayer out of our schools and have taught for 50 years now that our kids evolved without God. But finally, after misleading billions of people in the mid-1950s, it was discovered these jokers had taken the skullcap of a human, the jawbone from an orangutan, filed them down to fit together, acid-treated both sides, and buried them in a rock quarry in Piltdown, England. Two years later came along and discovered Piltdown Man and spent the rest of their lives as world-renowned evolutionists. Speaking on any college campus they chose and misled billions of people on a total fraud. This is Nebraska man. 
All that was found in Nebraska, man, was a piece of a broken tooth, but Darwinists can get pretty creative. From the broken tooth, they reconstructed Nebraska, man, his family, and the tools they would have worked with. It was later proven the tooth came from an extinct pig. Yeah, here's the real Nebraska man right there. <laughs> so back in 1932, they found a crushed lower jawbone. It was crushed in about 40 pieces, but, and it was all ape's teeth. So they reconstructed those 40 pieces, and guess what? It came out in the shape of a human jawbone with all ape's teeth, and thus was born Ramapithecus, the missing link. And 45 years later, after misleading hundreds of millions of people, it was proven that was a jawbone from an orangutan. Proven 35 or so years ago. Wow, to be an orangutan. So a kid studying to be a, 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 dental, a dentist was in dental school, and he gives me his advanced biology book. He came over to my house, and he was talking to me, and he said, hey, Russ, pick out some frauds out of my biology book. Well, hey, we could be here for a week going through the frauds in the textbooks. I don't really have any need for more. I can't even show the ones that I have. But I, as we were talking, I was flipping through the book, and there was the drawing of Ramapithecus' teeth in the brand-new advanced biology books from dental school. So that caught my eye, so I stopped to read it. Well, now, 35-plus years later, they put him back in the textbooks with a new name. He's called Sivapithecus. And it says, this genus now includes the animal formerly known as Ramapithecus, proven to be an orangutan 35 years ago. Unbelievable. Why don't they get the frauds out of the textbooks and put in the real evidence? They don't have any. It never happened. And billions of people are buying into these frauds because kids are being taught this from a little early age all the way through the Ph.D. level. Say the color, not the word. Now, Lucy's been the messiah of evolution since about 1974. They found about 30% of a skeleton. They knew within a couple of years it was just an ape, stood about three and a half feet tall, drug its knuckles on the ground. But this is now the messiah of evolution. They say they know it's ape becoming human because the, the thigh bone, the, the, the femur, has the angle to hook up with the knee joint. And people have angle thigh bones. They kind of overlook the fact that all tree-dwelling apes have angle femurs. They said, but the knee joint, think about this, is slightly bigger than a normal ape's knee, proving it's becoming human. Well, if you took the knee joint of everybody in this room, they'd be different sizes, right? Oh, they also forgot to mention the knee in question was found over a mile away and 230 feet deeper in the straddle air. Yeah, if that was Lucy's knee, I want to see the airplane that hit that monkey. He must have been going right through the treetops about 800 miles an hour. This from 1987. Anatomists have concluded these are not a link between ape and man and did not walk upright like a human. Here's a new textbook showing Lucy walking upright like a human with normal human feet while talking on a cell phone. <laughs> Mind-boggling. You know, the, the, the foot bones were not found with Lucy. Now, they found other such skeletons since, Australopithecus afarensis. They have curved toes and fingers, so they can grab onto tree limbs. Pure fraud, pure propaganda. Tome man's one of the new missing links. They say it's older than any hominin ever found before, making their finders world-renowned evolutionists. You always have to have the oldest or the youngest. Do you notice that? 
Yet when they found it in 2002, Science, uh, Nature magazine said, this is just an ape. When they found it in 2002, Science News says it's got ape's teeth. It didn't walk up on two legs. They knew it was an ape when they found it. They wait 10 years and put it in the textbook as the closest link between ape and man. And millions of kids, 85 to 90% of Christian kids are leaving the church by the age of 20 because they're being taught this and very few are ever seeing the information I'm showing you right now. Dwayne Gish defined Darwinism as a sustenance of fossils hoped for, the evidence of links unseen. <laughs> Think about it logically, with millions of various apes and monkeys having lived and died in the last 500 years alone, why does finding a monkey bone prove evolution? Doesn't it just prove that when monkeys die, they leave their bones behind? Yet here's a new textbook showing humans connected to all sorts of apes and primates with nice, colorful lines, including being related to the tarsier. We're related to the tarsier? <laughs> Grandma, what big eyes you've got. <laughs> so think about this from Romans 1. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You know something? We can all be fooled on things, right? doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you've been fooled. I know some brilliant people who've been fooled into believing in Darwinian evolution, for example. But they become fools, and they change the glory of the uncorruptible God, which I believe today is his creation, into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. I think they're going to change creation into the fairy tale of Darwinian evolution. Now, these verses are talking about idolatry. And the highest form of idolatry is to think you're the most evolved, you're your own God. And that's where we stand as a society today. But a review of Darwinism versus real science, a Christian's best friend, will show us that the law of biogenesis holds that Darwinism never even got started. Mathematical probability says it never took place. The fossil record shows no transitional forms. There are no missing links, no half this, half that, flopping around anywhere on earth today, are there? And my friends, it's not because of hopeful monsters. And their lack of evidence is not because of punctuated equilibrium. And it's certainly not because the evidence got lost in the iffy stuff. It's because gene depletion plus natural selection makes Darwinian evolution a scientific impossibility. It never happened. And that's why they've got no evidence. But they own the textbooks and they fill the textbooks with fraud after fraud after fraud. Anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of Christianity. But billions of years leading to Darwinism are two beliefs, billions of years and Darwinism, billions of years their foundation, we took care of that last night, is simply humanistic indoctrination, which has undermined scientific education, scientific research, and the faith of billions of people. The calling of this ministry is to teach about creation, evolution, and age of the earth issues, to expose false anti-biblical teachings and to provide a reason for the hope that's in the heart of every true believer, every true seeker, and anybody with an open mind. 
even a, a person about to, to um, get her degree in biology and become a high school biology teacher, anyone with an open mind for the truth that God will allow us to reach. We do this for our various teachings and our Grand Canyon and Grand Staircase tours. You guys know we'll be doing one together next June. I hope you guys can all find a way to go. I'd love to have you all there. It's an awesome, awesome trip. Grand Canyon, Zion, Bryce, and a day of river rafting, the Colorado River through the canyons. You can get our DVDs. I have 12 messages on our study sets. We have singles back there. You can talk to my wife about them. Hey, listen, I don't copyright them. I encourage you, get them. Make all the copies you want and give them to people. They will make a difference. Uh, one woman gave a copy to her parents. They're now Christians. My book, It's About Time, we were up in Idaho two weeks ago, and a woman kept calling us up, wanting us to come over for dinner, but our schedule was just packed the whole week. I spoke at the college three days. I spoke at three different churches. We did a two-day creation conference. We were only there eight days, but there was one night. I said, well, this one night, the second to last night, we could come over, and she said, great, I want you to come over. The reason she wanted us to come over, we found out when we got there, was she had gotten my book, It's About Time, a year ago, and gave it to her mother, who was a retired biochemist, and non-believer. She didn't hear from her mother about it for six months, but six months ago her mother called her up and said, I never knew this type of information existed. And in the last six months, she's accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. We can make a difference. I can get the information to just so many people. You guys could also reach it. You can give away our, our DVDs. Just make copies, give them away. Um, you know, our, our coloring books are really great resources. I mean, for kids, but for adults, too, if you read through them, especially the one on Noah's Ark and dinosaurs because it covers the foundational issues, the creation, the corruption, the need for separation, and God's plan of salvation from the flood and now from the coming judgment by fire. And talk to my wife about it's about time. The reason is simply this. By learning real science, a believer's best friend, we can chop down the thorn bush of false science which is billions of years of death and suffering, leading to a Darwinian process and undermining the foundation of the gospel message. By preparing the soil, we can then plant the seed in good prepared soil, and we can reap a bountiful harvest if God will let us do so. Let me end my part with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening. I, I thank you for the last few days that we've been able to be here. I thank you for Dan and Deb Anderson and their efforts to get us here, for Pastor Dan and all of his help and for allowing us to be here to share. I thank you for every dear soul that's given up their, their evenings and their time off to be here to learn information. I just hope and I pray that the information we've shared will be a blessing to them and bring them closer in their walk with you and give them information that they can protect their children and grandchildren with and that they can help others to find the truth of you and your word. Your word who became flesh and dwelt among us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his great name I do pray. Amen.